Hey there, losers! Welcome to the Second Day Film Podcast, the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club and the unofficial podcast of the Losers Club. Okay, I just made that up. I don't know any of the Losers Club. But what I do know is it's Wednesday, September 11th, 2019, and I'm your host, Brandon Champion, flying solo today, much like the Losers Club in the middle portion of it, Chapter 1, after the emotional heart-wrenching fight between our good friends Richie and Bill. I'm going to try and avoid the hallucinations, the scary shit, any sort of encounters with a demonic clown or spiders or sinks that gush blood or naked zombie grandmas. I'm cool on that. I'm going to chill on that, at least when it comes to real life. When it comes to movies, I can talk about that. That's what we do here at the Second Day Film Podcast. Of course, I've got several reviews here today, and in case you haven't been able to uh, read through the blood, uh, It Chapter 2 will be one of those films I talk about today. Um, But before I get to that, of course, jokes aside, today is a somewhat somber day here in the United States. September 11th, it's the 18th anniversary of the September 11 attacks in New York, Washington, D.C., rural Pennsylvania. Of course, I'm mindful of that. I spent the morning watching some videos on YouTube um, because I like to remind myself yearly about how tragic that day was. Um, And I think it's important that we we revisit those feelings um, and how we felt on that tragic day. Uh, So kind of sad, but um, I really do believe that it's important to never forget what happened. Um, So transitioning from that to movies feels kind of weird and uncomfortable. Uh, But this is a movie podcast. And as they say, the show must go on. Uh, It's been a little bit since our last pod. I've been busy. Had a garage sale at the house. Celebrated my 30th birthday. Uh, Had several fantasy football drafts. And football season has kind of gotten underway. So that's sort of occupied a lot of my time. Um, But I have been able to get to the theater and see a few movies. Um, And I'll be providing spoiler-filled thoughts on three of them including uh, one I just saw last night, and I've referenced several times, It Chapter 2. Pretty wild, fun movie. Checked it out in IMAX last night. Got a free poster out of it, so that was cool. I put that on our Facebook page. That's at Second Day Film Podcast. Just search that in the search bar. It should pop up. Really appreciate if you could give us a like um, or a rating. Um, Tell your friends to like the page. And if you don't want to do that, hell, just interact with the page like the stuff we put up there. I put trailers up there, fun memes, um, some cool pictures, some film news. Um, so it's kind of a, a smorgasbord. I don't think I said that right. Smorgasbord. Eh, that's a tough one. Is that German? What is that? Anyways, check out the Facebook page. I'm also on Twitter, The Second Day Film Podcast. You can, that's all written out on Instagram at The Second Day Film Podcast. Our old episodes are on iTunes and SoundCloud. Can check some of those out. We had some pretty good response to the last episode that me and Mike Nichols did. Talked about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino's latest joint. It's a fun movie. It was a fun review. Mike's the best. We'll get him back on here at some point. He was supposed to be on uh, last week. We had a pod planned, but something came up, so had to push it off. So anyways, big show going on today. I'll get to the movies here in a second, but one other thing I wanted to touch on. Um, When I was in the theater last night, I saw a couple of these uh, theater-only trailers that have sort of become popular recently. 
One is for Christopher Nolan's new film. It's called Tenet. It's uh, due to come out next year, 2020, I think in July. We don't know much about this movie. We know it has a good cast, led by Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Kenneth Branagh, Michael Caine, and of course, John David Washington, most recently seen in Black Klansman. He was largely featured in this uh, trailer. We don't have much of a plot summary either. The project is described as an action epic revolving around international espionage, time travel, and evolution. Uh, that's kind of represented in the trailer that we see. It's a brief 44-second trailer, but it has taglines like, It's time for a new protagonist. It's time for a new kind of mission. Uh, we see John David Washington standing in a what looks like a two-way window room looking at bullets, like maybe he's a detective of some kind. But, you know, Christopher Nolan loves to incorporate time travel into a lot of his movies. So um, this looks like it, it could be sort of a Inception-y type film. So excited to see that. Not much known about that now, but I'm sure more and more will start to come out uh, as we get closer to the summer of 2020. And the other trailer that I saw before it, they pulled kind of like a fake fake, fake out on you where, uh, you know, they show, they do the please be quiet, silence your cell phones now. You know, they go through a couple opening credits to make it seem like it is starting and the screen fills up with red balloons we see Warner Brothers logo, but then we see DC, and uh, I was a little bit confused by that. And the film, the screen fills up with red balloons, and what do we know? Harley Quinn pops on screen and says, I'm so sick of balloons, and what this actually ends up being is a trailer for Birds of Prey, which is the uh, DC Universe film set to come out um, in 2020 as well. It's the official title is actually Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Um, the plot summary on IMDb for that is after splitting with the Joker, Harley Quinn joins superheroes Black Canary, Huntress, and Renee Montoya to save a young girl from an evil crime lord. Uh, the Birds of Prey, the female superhero group, um, you know, known in the comics, Arrow, that TV show on the CW, uh, delved into some of these Birds of Prey characters before. I don't know what to think about it. The trailer, it's just a brief one of Harley Quinn being goofy. Um, Margot Robbie was great in that role in um, Suicide Squad. She was about the only good part of that movie. Um, so I guess I'm excited to see it, but I don't know. It's hard to sort of judge DC so far out, and we don't really know much about this movie. So, uh, you know, hopefully it's better than some of the other DC projects we've seen. So just a couple quick things to look out for if you're, you know, going to the theater soon or recently um you know these theater only trailers i mean you can find them online obviously but it's kind of fun when they just pop up out of nowhere when you're at the theater all right so getting into the first of three reviews that i'm going to have for you here today i uh, saw this one a couple weeks ago it's fast and furious presents hobbs and shaw uh the plot summary on imdb Lawman Luke Hobbs and outcast Deckard Shaw form an unlikely alliance when a cyber-genetically enhanced villain threatens the future of humanity. This movie is directed by David Leach and stars Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham reprising their roles from previous Fast and Furious films. Idris Elba, Vanessa Kirby uh, also star in this movie. And we get some fun cameos that pop in and out. I'm going to get to those in a second. Um, just a quick reminder, full spoilers for all these movies that I'm going to be touching on here today. Um, I think I said that in the beginning, but just want to reiterate that. 
So Hobbs and Shaw, this is a spin-off movie set in the Fast and Furious universe. I think we've had eight of the Fast and Furious movies, and a ninth is in development. Um, so this takes place, I believe, in between and after the eighth one. So Hobbs and Shaw have a relationship. Hobbs, they fought each other. They've had to work begrudgingly together uh, with each other before. We know these guys are just badasses. Of course, Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham are two of the most bankable action heroes in Hollywood today. They've both got muscles. They've got bald heads. They've got attitudes. They've got chutzpah. And they like to break shit. And that's pretty much what they do throughout this entire movie. They break a lot of shit. Um, this is an action movie in every sense of the word, of course. We know what to expect from Fast and the Furious. Outlandish, crazy action sequences that sort of uh, push the limits of what could actually be possible. And let's be real, most of the action sequences aren't possible. Uh, and that's the, the same case in this movie. We've got scenes of Hobbs and Shaw running on the side of buildings, fighting people on the side of buildings. We've got them clinging to jeeps that are uh, tied to a helicopter and swinging off the sides of cliffs. This isn't the type of movie that you're going to go see looking for any sort of intellectual message. It's an action movie. Um, I think the chemistry between uh, Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham is good. Um, they, they're doing a lot of witty bantering amongst each other, um, talking about how ugly each other's faces are and how they want to smash it in, and they go toe-to-toe -to -toe with insults. And there's some good comedy in here from the two leads. I mean, they, they really are these two brawn, brash rivals that are used to just being the toughest guy on the block. And when they have to go up against each other and begrudgingly work together, to uh, save Deckard Shaw's sister, played by Vanessa Kirby, um, and by extension, everyone else in the world. Uh, it's you know, becomes a little bit of a, um, uh, a show, <laughs> you could say. Um, there's some really great writing when they're going at each other. Um, you know, although I will say, I think it does get a little bit tiresome. It's almost like when you're doing this tough guy act for so long, and you've got all the right things to say, and you just start talking trash to each other. Eventually, it's just like, okay, guys, we get it. You're both super tough, you know, and it just goes on a little bit too long sometimes. Um, but overall, you know, their banter is good. It keeps you entertained. So that's funny. But I got to say, most of this movie, it kind of dragged. The plot was all over the place. Um, and it didn't really keep me that entertained, unfortunately. Um, you know, the Fast and the Furious series as a whole is one that I've only recently warmed up to. I feel like when you get to the point where it's like eight movies in one series, it's a little bit ridiculous and repetitive. Um, but I think around like the fourth or fifth one, they kind of pivoted and went from a movie series just about cars to almost like a James Bond Mission Impossible type thriller. They basically turned our heroes into international spies and um, you know, heist, professional heist people. And so the series got a lot more interesting then. And this movie's definitely in that sort of vein. Um, but the plot is all over the place. We have a MacGuffin of this, um, this uh, item that 
uh, Idris Elba's character, this super soldier, wants to get a hold of. Um, and, you know, there's a way to destroy the whole world, yada, yada, yada. So they have to get it back. So they're fighting over this. You know, we've got changing allegiances left and right in this movie. Um, and the action sequences, while they're cool, they're just so ridiculous, it's almost hard to get a, get a handle on when you're watching it on the big screen. I did think the movie picked up uh, in the final act. They go to Samoa, which is obviously Dwayne Johnson has some Samoan roots. So it's cool that they kind of got to incorporate that into this film. But the final showdown happens with his band of brothers on the island, and they're fighting with all these, uh, you know, ethnic, uh, you know, authentic artifacts of Samoan culture, and they're fighting up against super soldiers with weapons. They do find a way to make the weapons not work, uh, um, you know, conveniently. They find a way to work that into the script. Um, and, and it's kind of fun to see. It's a, it's a cool-looking set piece. Although at some point it randomly changes from day to night and night to day, it looks really inconsistent in the way that it's shot. Where when the move when the scene starts, they're charging at each other at night, but then as the scene progresses, the close-ups look like it's daytime, like literally the middle of the day. I don't know if they just brightened it up in post-production because it was too dark and people wouldn't be able to follow it, but it, it looks very peculiar um, when the movie when the scene starts in pure darkness and then cuts straight to daytime. The key message here is Idris Elba's character wants to bring balance. He's sort of channeling his inner Thanos, where he thinks that, you know, humanity is weak and they need to restart because humans are weak and they can restart as these genetically enhanced super human race and the world will be better for it. He's working for this largely unknown deity, Etienne, um, who can shut him down whenever he wants. So Idris Elba doesn't have a whole lot of choice for what he's doing and he fails and, you know, that doesn't work out for Idris Elba. So the villain I think is lacking while Idris Elba definitely has the charisma and the chutzpah and the biceps to compete with Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson. Um, you know, I think the the main villain, or at least the person controlling him, is somewhat lacking. I just, I guess, was expecting a little bit more because a lot of the Fast and Furious, particularly uh, five, 4, 5, 6, and 7, I thought were really well done. And they're trying to sort of carve out their own niche away from that universe here. I think they're partially successful in doing that. Um, but overall, it's just kind of a bland, boring, Michael Bay-ish film. As I mentioned, we do get some fun, unexpected cameos. Uh, Helen Mirren shows up um, as Deckard, Hattie, and Owen, who we've seen in previous films played by Luke Evans. She's in prison as their mother, and she's just sort of hanging out in prison because she kind of likes it, because it's three square meals a day. She's treated like a queen. She doesn't have to worry about everything. And they sort of openly joke on screen about how they could break her out in a second if they wanted to. And she's like, oh, not right now. I'm not feeling it. Uh, Ryan Reynolds and Kevin Hart make uncredited appearances as um, a CIA agent sort of recruiting uh, Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds' sake. And then uh, uh, Kevin Hart plays an air marshal who sort of ends up helping out. Uh, the two heroes once they get further on in their adventure. And, and, and they're both very funny. They bring a lot of charisma. They're, they're typical charisma to the screen. Um, both 
delivering some funny lines in their signature comedic way. So that was an unexpected surprise that I appreciated. There's some funny pop culture references everywhere. Actually, there's Game of Thrones spoilers. If you haven't seen the last season, you're going to want to avoid this because it's ultimately um, and seamlessly flowed into some of the banter between uh, Dwayne Johnson and, and Vanessa Kirby and Jason Statham. So it's literally spoils the end of the show. So maybe avoid that if you haven't seen Game of Thrones. It has some redeeming qualities. That's why I gave it a, a 6 out of 10. Um, in terms of the action, um, but overall, it's nothing special. You've seen this movie a hundred times, um, so if you're a fan of the Fast and Furious series, you'll probably like this well enough, but ultimately, it's somewhat forgettable, and that's why I gave it a 6 out of 10. All right, moving forward to a couple more films I want to review today, and I think they're both kind of uh, good companion stories, uh, as they're both movies based on novels. Uh, the first is Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. This movie is directed by Andre Ovredal, um, who I know from a film called uh, Troll Hunter that came out a few years ago. Really enjoyed that film. Um, this movie was written by Guillermo del Toro and is based on the children's horror story series um, of the same name written by Elvin Schwartz. This movie has an ensemble cast of mostly child actors, including Zoe Margaret Coletti, Michael Garza, Gabriel Rush, Gil Bellows, uh, Dean Norris from Breaking Bad is in this, Austin Zajur, Austin Abrams. Um, so, you know, largely unknown cast. Um, but the plot summary on IMDb, pretty simple. A group of teens face their fears in order to save their lives. Of course, this book, as I said, or sorry, this movie, as I said, is based on the scary stories to tell in the dark children's horror stories. Pretty popular in the 80s and 90s. I rem remember reading them as a kid. I remember my grandma had all the books. Um, and and it's they're really just harmless, scary, but not like too far out there horror stories. They're simple sort of, um, you know, stories that are going to keep you on the edge of your seat, but, you know, they're not going to give you nightmares for days and weeks to come. It's good, safe, fun horror. Um, and this movie has sort of that same sort of vibe, you know. We start out with some voiceover um, about how stories are real, and if we tell stories long enough... You know, sometimes we think they're real and stories are passed down. Um, but there's a cool vibe to this. It's it's uh, almost like a ghost stories come to life type story. It almost reminded me, this is going to be an obscure reference that very few people um, get. But in the 90s, there was this Cartoon Network TV movie called The Halloween Tree, which was almost like a celebration of scary stories and Halloween traditions and um, just a celebration everything of everything spooky. And it sort of, you know, takes place in this quaint little town, and um, these group of kids face different challenges. I sort of got the same sort of vibe from this movie. Um, it's a solid cast of unknown actors, and basically the idea here is that the stories um, that the antagonists, they find a, a book, a, a haunted book, and... They, what they find out is that the antagonist, this ghostly presence, can write stories in this book. And when she writes stories, they come to life. 
on screen. And some of these stories are taken directly from that scary stories to tell in the dark book. And others are made originally and adapted by Guillermo del Toro into the story on screen. So that's sort of the premise that we're left with throughout this movie. So basically we have a, a, a sort of core story that sort of anchors everything. And then we've got these sort of episodic written stories um, that each of the characters sort of have to challenge as this, or have to deal with as this demonic presence, you know, uh, tries to dispatch them all in very brutal ways. And I, I like that idea. I like the idea of stories. I like the idea of someone reading sort of a book to you and the consequences that are happening. It almost feels like the movie is a storybook in itself. So I, I always love that vibe. And if I was going to describe this movie to someone, I would almost say that it's almost like a horror Jumanji. Because in Jumanji, the movie that came out with Robin Williams, Kirsten Dunst in the, in the early 90s, you know, the kids are playing the board game. Whoever's turn it is, they roll the dice. The riddle pops up on screen, and they have to deal with the stampede. They have to deal with an alligator. They have to deal with a crazed poacher. They have to deal with a, a band of monkeys, you know. So they deal with these challenges as they come. And this movie sort of structured in the same way where they have to deal with these different challenges that come out of the book or they, that come to life because... Sarah Bellows, the demonic presence, is writing it in her books. They have to deal with it one by one. Each character has their own sort of fear or thing that they have to deal with. So it almost feels like a horror Jumanji uh, in a way. I think the, the, the core story that anchors everything isn't quite as good as the episodic stories. The, the episodic stories are, are, are really fun. You know, we have one where a scarecrow comes to life and murders the town bully. We have one where a guy is, uh, a zombie has lost his big toe. This is right from the book. And one of the guys is, one of the characters is, ends up eating the toenail in his stew. And then the zombie chases him down and pulls him into the netherworld. We have one where a zit on this girl's face just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it pops open and spiders cover her entire body. We have a, a creepy, pale-faced woman who's stalking this guy in a completely red room. So the different sort of monsters that emerge throughout this and the different situations that these characters are put in are really fun. And I think it, it works much better than the actual core story which holds this together, which is these kids go into this scary haunted house. Um, they find that this uh, girl, Sarah Bellows, um, was sick and basically hid away by her wealthy family, the town, the people who basically started the town that these kids are living in. She was shunned by her entire family, basically poisoned, shut away in the darkness. And because of that, she becomes this mean-spirited, evil person who just wants to bring pain on humanity. And I like that idea. While the core story that it tells in or that it's set in isn't great, I love the idea because of course Guillermo del Toro, everyone knows he loves his monsters. Um, you know, he's he has sympathy for monsters. He, the monsters he creates, he wants to treat them with respect. He wants to show that they're multifaceted. He wants to show that there's more to monsters than just being a monster. He asks the question, what makes a monster? Why does a monster act in this way? Um, and that, that can be seen as recently as his most recent film, The Shape of Water, 
you know, we see that. We're supposed to sympathize with the monster in that movie. And I think in this movie, we're supposed to sympathize with the monster as well, because Sarah Bellows, this girl, she was just an innocent girl who was basically um, destroyed by her family and turned into a monster by her family. The main villain here ultimately is a victim. She's ultimately a tragic hero by the end of this, because through the will and, um, you know, requests and begging of our main characters, she ultimately has pity on everyone and stops doing what she did. Um, so this question of a monster versus a created monster, um, I really, really like within the story. And I think it's a cool way to sort of take it um, at the end. I love the idea that, you know, stories... Stories are all throughout. It's littered throughout this. Obviously, it's called scary stories to tell in the dark. Stories are a central part of the plot. Um, but I, I love that stories are what the antagonist in the beginning in most of the film is using to cause destruction. And by the end of the film, um, the main uh, sort of girl that is sort of leading the charge in this, Stella, played by Zoe Coletti, um, what she learns is she learns the truth behind Sarah Bellows and why she's doing these terrible things and why she's telling these mean stories. And the way she gets her to stop is she promises to tell the world Sarah Bellows' story and what her family did to her and that she wasn't a monster, but it was actually her family that was the monsters and they're the ones who created her. So I like that stories are used for both destruction and stories are ultimately used as the solution in the movie called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And I just think that's a cool message that's portrayed pretty obviously through the voiceover in the beginning and end of the film um, that sort of talks about the power of stories and what we can do with them. So I just think that's cool from a thematic standpoint. Um, this is a pretty safe horror film. Um, I believe it's rated PG because there is some scary imagery, um, but th this isn't something that, you know, you can really... Um, be that scared of. You know, It is far scarier. It that I'm going to talk about next. You know, It is definitely geared towards a more adult audience. Um, you know, there's probably an overuse of the cliche jump scares. I think you could say that about It as well. Um, but I thought the horror elements were cool. I thought that the the world that this took place in was cool. And it really just feels like one of those movies that you could watch with your family around Halloween every year and have a good time doing it. So I gave Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark a 7.5 out of 10. All right, moving on to today's featured review. It is It Chapter 2. It's the supernatural horror film and sequel to the 2017 film It, both of which are based on the 1986 novel of the same name um, by Stephen King. This film, like the first one, is directed by Andy Muschietti and written by Gary Dauberman. This film is set in 2016, 27 years after the first film, and stars the older versions of The Losers Club. Um, it stars Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader, Isaiah Mustafa, Jay Ryan, James Ransom, and Andy Bean. Um, the younger versions also make appearances here. Jaden Martell, Sophia Lillis, Finn Wolfhard, Chosen Jacobs, Jeremy Ray Taylor, Jack Dylan Grazer, and Wyan Wyatt Olaf, Bill Skarsgård also returns to portray Penny, the Pennywise, the dancing clown. The plot summary on IMDb: 
27 years after their first encounter with the terrifying Pennywise, the Losers Club have grown up and moved away until a devastating phone call brings them back. Of course, this film is the direct follow-up to the 2017 film, and it um, starts with a pretty brutal note with Pennywise returning, um, eating a gay guy who has just been savagely beaten and thrown off a bridge. So in case you forgot about how brutal the world of It is, um, It becomes pretty clear right away. Um, with our main characters, right off the bat here, I think it's important to establish that the members of the so-called Losers Club aren't losers at all anymore. They are all very successful. They've all moved away to big cities. They are architects, successful comedians. They work for investment firms. They are very successful. Um, so... As losers when they were kids, they are very clearly not losers. They've forgotten the traumatic events of the summer of 1980, at least in the book. Um, I think in the, or at least in the first movie, I believe in the book, it's set in the 60s. But um, this film is set in 2016, um, the new film. So it's very important to establish that these kids have moved on. They've forgotten about the tragic events. They've forgotten about Pennywise. And as Mike, the one character who has remained in Derry, Maine, explains... The farther away you move from Derry, the more you forget things, the more you forget about trauma, the bad stuff that happened, and all these characters have very much done that. Um, and what they realize is, through moving away, they've also forgotten about their friendships. These characters are largely out of touch. When Mike Hanlon is calling them all to bring them back to Derry, not a single one of them has his phone number saved in their phone. They see Derry and they instantly get squirmish, they throw up, they get in an accident. Because they know when they see a phone call from Derry, Maine, it's just not a good thing. So as much as they've tried to remember, there's still this feeling that's there and will always be there of dread. So I like that this movie right away establishes that these characters have moved on. And that's they're very quickly brought back to where they need to be to defeat Pennywise upon arriving back in Derry. There's cool transitions in this movie, um, particularly in the early portions of the film, um, where like a balloon might fly across the sky from one character and then pan into a room where we'll see another character, or um, when Stanley Uris um, commits suicide at the beginning of the film, his blood is dripping and the scene quickly shifts to a blo imaginary blood drop falling on Jessica Chastain to wake her up. Um, we're jumping back and forth between past and present a lot of the time where um, a character, an adult character will pick something up and then the next shot we're looking at the kids version of the Losers Club. And I think that's very intentional to sort of draw the connection um, between the then and now. Um, so I like that the filmmakers sort of used a technical aspect of doing things to sort of draw us into the plot and the connection between the two timelines. Pennywise, played by Bill Skarsgård, is scary as hell, uh, per usual. I particularly like the scene when Bev is confronted, the adult Bev, played by Jessica Chastain, is confronted by him for the first time, and he's putting on his makeup, and he's telling her, you know, are you ready, Beverly? I'm back. Are you ready to play? It's, it's really scary. 
Um, you know, he, he pulls his claws down over his face and he starts bleeding. And it's it's really terrifying horror imagery. I mean, there's really cool horror imagery throughout this, similar to the first one. I don't know if the scares are quite as effective in the first one. I think the first one, maybe it's because they were kids and not adults, but it felt more scary. I was more scared in the first one. This one, maybe I just kind of knew more what to expect from Muschietti's style and the filmmaker's style because they are they very much make an effort to remain consistent between this one and the first one. And so maybe that's what they're doing, but it's it's very terrifying at times. It's also very funny at times. Bill Hader's character is a comedian, so he's making wisecracks throughout it, and the little kids are funny when they're with their little innocent banter. So that's good. Um, the casting. We have pretty much three stars, I would say, in Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, and Bill Hader, who were obviously cast. I think maybe they cast the kids with those three in mind to be in it, Chapter 2. And you can very clearly see with the rest of the cast, um, you know, when they cast, you know, Ben and Eddie and Stanley and Mike, that they were more just looking for adult actors that could, um, you know, that looked like the kids. You know, I think that, um, you know, none of these other guys and girl guys are, are very big name actors. I mean, they're obviously working actors, but they're not exactly headlining actors. So, you know, I think they got the star power with those three. And then after that, they really went through and just looked for actors that looked like the kids. And they do a phenomenal job of, of filling out the cast to make it believable that these kids really are, or that these adults really were these kids that encountered it back in the 1980s. <clears throat> so that it just helps to create like a fluid, um, cohesive story. So I think that the casting director gets full marks for that. The characters are more on the offensive in this one. Let's be honest. The story is basically the same thing uh, as the first one. <laughs> they basically just have to come back and confront it in a whole new way. But they're definitely more on the offensive. In the, in the first one, they're just discovering it and they're realizing that they're all seeing the same clown and they're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. In this one, Mike has been researching the topic for 27 years, so he kind of has an idea of how to fight it. He has an idea of what they have to do. The main challenge in this movie is just to convince everyone to get on board and actually live up to their blood oath and fight Pennywise. One thing I really liked about the movie, if the first movie is really, when it comes down to it, is about the loss of innocence. Each of their characters, you know, has to deal with a certain thing, you know, uh, Bill has to deal with the loss of Georgie, and Bev has to deal with her sexually abusive father. You know, uh, we find out Richie, there's this subplot where he um, struggles with his sexuality, and he actually has feelings for Eddie, his friend. Um, it's very much an undertone in this movie, but and we don't get a ton of that in the first one. I'd like to go back and watch the first one and see if they sort of play that up at all. But that's something that he's really dealing with. Um, you know, Mike is dealing with... Um, being stuck in Derry and, and not being able to cope with the loss of his parents in the fire and not being able to go to Florida, like he says. He hasn't been able to escape. Eddie just deals with the general fear of things and, and being a hypochondriac and overly exaggerating everything. And he needs to realize that, you know, he is braver than he thinks. And all these challenges are brought on by it and exemplified by it in the first film. 
So these kids all lose their innocence in a certain way. And if the first film is about losing innocence, um, I wouldn't say that the second film is so much about regaining that innocence, but it's more about understanding and confronting the fact that it happened. Um, you know, they're, they're, they really clearly need to confront each of their own demons in this movie. You know, at the beginning of the movie, Mike thinks that the way to destroy it is to do this ritual of chud that he learned from these Native Americans. And what we find out is that really is all hogwash. It doesn't work at all. When the Native Americans tried to do it, they got obliterated. And it doesn't work here either. But what we do find out is they need to confront what made them lose that loss of innocence in the first place. In this movie, we see Ben and Beverly finally confront you know, Ben, Ben is, I didn't mention Ben earlier, but he's worried about his weight. He's insecure about being alone and not having real friends. He's insecure to portray his true feelings for Beverly. So in this movie, Beverly learns to, that he's, she's not her abusive father's little girl. She puts that aside. She says no more. Ben finally learns to stand up and, and, and confront Beverly about his true feelings. Um, you know, Bill, shoots the ghostly versions of both his little brother Georgie and his younger self. He stops blaming himself for Georgie's death. You know, Richie becomes brave and attacks it at the very end, and he loses his life for it, but he does. Mike finally leaves Derry at the end. So all our characters, through fighting it, learn to confront what they fear most, and that's ultimately what it is. He's an exemplar of their fear and by defeating and fighting it by telling it telling him he's small and it has no longer has bearing on their life and it the proverbial it the fear has no more bearing on their life they finally learn how to fight it and reveal what they've truly been fighting all along that's what ultimately destroys it not some hogwash ritual so i think that thematically it's really awesome and while as I said at the beginning of the review, they've all grown up to be very successful and moved on. These issues have always been lingering over their lives. And ultimately what brings them back, and as the final voiceover says, is they always have to remember that they're losers. They're losers and they always will be. And that doesn't mean that they're actually losers, but it means that the losers club will always be part of who they are and they can't run from that part of their lives anymore. So thematically, I thought this movie was fantastic as hell. That's all in the book in the miniseries as well, but I think it was really executed very well in this movie. My biggest gripe was with it chapter 2 and I could say this about the first one too is it's it's definitely too long. 2 hours and 49 minutes uh, is the runtime for this one and that's on the heels of the first film, which was well over two hours as well. I think there's some scenes in the middle um, where we don't need them to go on as long. As I said, it's a little bit repetitive, both in terms of plot compared to the first film and in terms of scares. Um, you know, in the middle portion of this film, we follow each of them to go with their tokens for the ritual that doesn't actually work. And while there's some really cool horror imagery, there's some cool stuff going on, it just gets a little bit tiresome after a while because we're seeing scene after scene after scene of Pennywise just terrorizing these people. And when you do that many horror scenes in a row, the audience become a becomes accustomed to knowing that something scary is going to happen. The film relies a lot on jump scares. It relies a lot on scary music, dark hallways, you know, dark happenings going on. It's a very dark movie. Um... 
so, you know, it's not exactly inventive in the way that it tries to do its scares, but Pennywise is just creepy. Let's face it, clowns are just scary, and the stuff that Pennywise does is scary. It's creepy. Um, like I said, I didn't think this movie was quite as scary as the first one, but it's, it, it's um, you know, it's unsettling. But I was never really scary, although I did, a couple of the jump scares did get me pretty good, um, because it can be creepy at times. But overall, I think this is a really well-done horror movie. I'm glad this It movie got made. I think they did it with a really good tone. Um, they, they nailed the sort of atmosphere that they had to have. Definitely earns, um, you know, it definitely earns the R rating that it has. Stephen King, I should mention, makes a short cameo in this. So I, I like the movie. I liked it a lot overall. And I ended up giving it a 7.5 out of 10. All right, that's going to do it for today's solo pod on behalf of the Losers Club and the Second Day Film Club. Okay, not the Losers Club. I should give that bit up. But anyways, appreciate you listening. Hope you enjoyed the reviews. Be sure to check out our Facebook page at Second Day Film Podcast. You can like us on Twitter at Second Day Film and on Instagram at Second Day Film Podcast. Old episodes are on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'll be looking for to get Mike back on here in the future. We've got movies. The busy summer season has kind of come and gone. But, of course, we're already into September, so the fall season is here, and also the busy holiday season will be here soon enough. And then the Oscar contenders will get to start talking about some awards. So, on behalf of the Losers Club, the Second Day Film Podcast, I'm your host, Brandon Champion. And until next time, we'll see you at the movies.